Good morning. It's great to be here. Wow, this is uh, really good. And uh, service this morning, the praise songs that integrate into the message that we're going to have. Um, Yeah, that brings back memories, planning this church. Two worst years of my life. (laughs) I mean, it was was tough, but uh, you can see that God was in it. And it was uh, the work of his spirit that uh, gathered a group of people. And uh, we're here today and uh, praise his name. I'm going to be speaking this morning on the theme, Help is Here. Help is Here. Uh, This is taken from a book that I recently read through three times. And the title of that book is Help is Here is here. And the person who wrote it was Max Licato. And I think it's one of his best books. Um, Max can do a pretty good job on a book. First of all, he writes for people that don't read books, if you ask Matt. Max. That's who he writes for. But he can do a pretty good job on a book because he has a staff of 40 people that help him. So, um, so if, you have a, if you like the message... Uh, Go pick up that book. You'll get more information on the Holy Spirit. Let's begin with prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, we know that it is in you that we live and we move and we have our being. We thank you for the presence, the power, and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we pray that... uh, We know that you're here, but we invite you, the third person of the Trinity, we invite you, O Holy Spirit, to be here at this time. You are welcome in this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most significant teaching that Jesus did is known as his farewell discourse. These words were given by Jesus to his disciples. Let me just take a drink here. These words were given by Jesus at the Last Supper. It was at this Last Supper that he had just washed the disciples' feet. And just before he began what we call this farewell discourse, he looked Peter in the eye and he said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Uh, and then he went into John 14, where he began to, to speak about, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And he knew <clears throat> that in this evening, he would be arrested. He would be, of course, uh, forsaken by his disciples. He would be brought to a trial. He knew that on the next day he would be under the trial of Pilate and he would be crucified. But what is so incredible about Jesus is this. Even though all this stuff was happening and this cloud of gloom was hanging over the room, Jesus, being the leader that he was, said, I want you to know what you got to remember the next 50 days. 
you need to remember that I am going to send, the Father's going to send a gift, a very special gift. It's called the paraclete, and he's going to be with you forever. Now, we see this because there are six statements, and if you have your Bible, you might want to turn to John 14. I don't have these in the PowerPoint, but I, I thought you should see these right in the Scriptures. There are six statements that Jesus made in that 20-minute discourse in which he speaks about the Holy Spirit. This tells us of the importance that Jesus saw in the Holy Spirit. John 14, 14 and 17. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will give the Father and he will give you another counselor. There's that word, paraclete. It's translated five different ways. Uh, coming alongside, advocate, helper, helper, comforter, counselor. And he will be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and he will be in you. John 14, 26 and 27. But the Comforter, sometimes in the NIV Bible it uses the Advocate there. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. John fifteen twenty six and 27. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes from the Father, he will testify about me. John 16, 6 and 7. Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. And I'm sure the disciples were thinking, yeah, sure. Unless I go, Jesus said, the counselor would not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. John 16, 8 through 11. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of the world now stands condemned. And then John 16, 13, and 14. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Six times in this final discourse, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. And then just prior to his ascension, in Acts 1, 4 through 8, and this is on the the screens, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. He had just spoken about it at the Last Supper. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, 
It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so what did the disciples do? They went to Jerusalem after the ascension. They went to Jerusalem and they waited and they prayed. And ten days later, after Jesus' ascension into heaven, the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost and the church was born. And the disciples began to experience what that paraclete was all about, that he was a comforter, that he was a friend, that he was a helper. Helper. Note what Jesus said. Pray and wait. Pray and wait. Note what he did not say. Listen, I have died and I'm risen from the grave, so I want you to go. And and in your own strength, I want you to tell people about Jesus. Here's how it's going to work. I'm going to manage the ministry from Jerusalem. I want Peter, I want you to go to Rome. I want Matthew, I want you to go to Greece and Ethiopia. I want John to go to Ephesus. John, Mark, you're in the group now. I want you to go to Egypt. You'll be killed there, but I want you to go there. Thomas, you're going to go to India, and you're going to find some people that are going to kill you too. Simon the Zealot, you go to Egypt, Libya, and Mauritania. James, you're going to stay with me in Jerusalem. Did he say anything like that? No. What he told his disciples is that he was leaving, but help was coming. Don't do anything without the Spirit of God. And we know that 50 days after the resurrection, 10 days after the ascension, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church in power. Now, Pentecost is one of the colossal events in the life of the Christian church. But it doesn't get the billing that Christmas, Good Friday, Good Friday and Easter get. Why is Pentecost <clears throat> so important? You see, prior to Pentecost, only the prophets, priests, and kings had the fullness of the Holy Spirit upon their life. But with, <clears throat> but with Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was now fully available to all believers. Peter spoke of this in Acts 2, 38 and 29. 39, Peter replied, Repent. Abraham's offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the beach. And he promised Abraham, through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. All of the nations of the earth. Folks, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of those promises to Abraham. It is through Christ that all of the nations of the earth are blessed. So, as you place your faith in Christ, you are an heir of that promise, that covenantal promise that God made to Abraham. You are one of those stars in the night sky. You are one of those grains of sand that God mentioned. Point number four, the Bible teaches that we are a new creation in Christ. Again, writing to the Corinthians, Paul wrote, Therefore, 
if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Growing up in Maine in the small town where where I lived, I was what the school district called a walker. That means that my parents' house is close enough to the school such that a bus didn't come through our neighborhood. I had to walk, you know, between a quarter, half mile to school every day. That was a lot of fun in the winter with three feet of snow and 20 degrees and a 30-mile-an-hour wind whipping off the Atlantic Ocean. But our path to school went through this little forested area and then out into this big field before we got to the school. And in the springtime, when we walked through that field, there were milkweeds all over it. Milkweeds growing up out of the field. And on those milkweeds were monarch caterpillars. And we used to take those caterpillars and a handful of milkweeds and go home and put them into a jar and punch holes in the top so they could breathe and, and, and watch the caterpillars become chrysalis and then become these beautiful monarch butterflies. So let's say that I take one caterpillar and say his name is Fred. I take Fred and I put him in the jar. I watch him do his thing and he spins his cocoon and out of that chrysalis, comes this beautiful butterfly. That's still Fred. In essence, Fred was the caterpillar. In an essence, Fred was the butterfly. But Fred has been transformed completely. He has been changed completely. He is a new creation, even though my caterpillar Fred has changed his form. That's kind of what it's like when we become new creations in the Christ Jesus. It's a, it's a spiritual regeneration a new birth, a new relational standing with God from enemies to peace to children of God to the workmanship of God. That's all part of being this new creation in Christ. Finally, we are ambassadors for Christ. Again, writing to the Corinthians, Paul wrote, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, that's their sins, against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, As ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, we become the righteousness of God. That is amazing. So when we accept Christ and are forgiven, it's as though Jesus comes up to us and 
he throws his robe of righteousness and purity and holiness over us so that when we stand in the presence of God, all he sees is Christ's reflection of purity and holiness and blamelessness shining back at him. We become the righteousness of God. We also become ambassadors for Christ. In verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So we read early in the verse that God gives us this ministry of reconciliation. We have been reconciled with God. Our trespasses, our sins are not counted against us. And God gives us this ministry of reconciliation. All of you. Those of you who are Christians have this ministry of reconciliation. And as such, you are an ambassador for Christ. So Benjamin Franklin was our ambassador to France, pleading the case of the new colonies in North America. But as Christians, you are the ambassadors of Jesus to this dying and upside-down crazy world It is outside the doors of Hope Church. God has entrusted you with that message of reconciliation. That's just amazing. that, That is humbling and daunting to me all at the same time. And you don't have to be standing up here on Sunday morning preaching to be a minister of reconciliation, to be ambassador of Christ. You are an ambassador of Christ no matter where you are and where you go in life, in your workplace, in your families, in your neighborhoods, when you're walking through the mall, when you go to a restaurant, you are an ambassador for Christ. He's entrusted you with that message. Amazing stuff. Absolutely amazing. Indeed, Benjamin Franklin was an eclectic, and extraordinary individual of many talents. As we saw, he had many roles, many identities that he took on over the course of his life from philosopher, publisher, writer, statesman, educator, ambassador, abolitionist, all these things that that he took on. But in a similar way, we as Christians have multiple facets to our identity in Christ, multiple roles that we play as people who have been forgiven, who have been given new life, who have moved from death to life in Christ. So today I ask you, when you stand in front of the mirror, do you see the workmanship of God who is who is to walk in good works standing before you? Do you see a new creation who is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you see a child of God? Do you see the offspring of Abraham? Do you see an heir of Abraham's covenantal promise? Do you see an ambassador for Christ? Do you see the righteousness of God looking back at you in the mirror?
Perhaps you look into the mirror and you see somebody looking back at you who has never placed their trust in God, to whom all of this seems alien. And if that's you, I implore you, I appeal to you, put your trust in Christ. If you feel that welling in your heart, in your mind, something's tugging on you today, that's the Holy Spirit drawing you to himself. I encourage you, don't let that feeling sit. Don't let those thoughts sit. Come and talk to me after service. We'll grab a bite to eat, get a cup of coffee, come pray with the prayer servants. Come in and talk to Pastor Greg. Just don't let that that nudging, that urge slip away. For those of you who are Christians, who have already taken that step in faith with Christ, you are children of God. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. You are his ambassadors. You are Christ's ambassadors in this dying world. You are the righteousness of God. If somebody tells you any different, they're lying to you. We've seen it from the word of God today. You'll walk out these doors and you'll be bombarded with a bunch of different images and messages about who you are, who you should be, who everybody wants you to be. Nonsense. We have looked at who we are in Christ today, and so hold on to that because there's a lot of noise out there, a lot of lies flying around there about who you are. So I want you to be encouraged. I want you to leave today pondering this stuff, considering this stuff, because God saved you for a reason, for a purpose. He has a purpose for your life. He loves you. He will never, ever leave you or forsake you. His Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You are his ambassadors. So I challenge you to embrace your eclectic identity and the roles that you have as a Christian. I challenge you to embrace your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray, please. Father in heaven, we, uh, we again thank you that we could assemble today and worship you and sing to you and pray and journey through your word. Lord Jesus, you have indeed made a way for us to walk from death to life, from being enemies to being at peace with you. And we We thank you for that, Lord. We ask, Lord, that by the the presence and abundance of your spirit, that you would meet each of us where we are, that you would cultivate in us um, faithful servants, faithful ambassadors, faithful children of God, Lord God. And, And we ask that you do all of this for your glory and your glory alone. Thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your faithfulness, Lord Jesus. And we pray all of this in your holy name. Amen. So the more we do, the, you know, the more you preach, the more you're, you, know, you kind of start to understand why sometimes pastors will start a sermon with a, with a joke. 
because uh, if you start with a joke, it's nothing serious. So if you stumble along while you're getting the nerves out, it's okay. The joke still works. But I have no jokes, so we'll continue on. <laughs> All right. So three weeks ago, we had the pleasure of hearing Brother Paul uh, deliver the message. Uh, his sermon was on Psalm 51, and he mentioned that he loved that psalm so much. It meant so much to him that he could actually preach Psalm 51 for weeks and weeks and weeks on end, right? And when I heard this, I got excited, right? I, I peaked up a little bit. Because it reminds me of the Reformed tradition of taking a passage or an entire book of the Bible and working through that passage verse by verse, section by section. Now, through the years, there are some pastors who have famously gone extremely slow through passages. So for some examples, John Calvin, he actually preached 159 sermons on the book of Job. And I don't know about you, but I think about, all right, so you got Job in the beginning, you got this whole, you know, Satan and, you know, the up in heaven thing, Job loses it. In the end, you got God and Job talking, but the main section is just a whole bunch of bad advice from his friends. I don't know how you get 159 sermons, but he does. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he actually preached 372 sermons on the book of Romans. This was his Friday night service. Each sermon was at least 50 minutes long. And he had, though he only preached 372, he would have gone further except his health began to decline, and he retired, and he only got to Romans 14, verse 17. He had two whole chapters left to go. John MacArthur, he took over 40 years to preach through the entire New Testament, on an average of four verses per week. But my favorite, by far, is a Scottish Presbyterian by the name of James Durham. James Durham, for a period, he preached 72 consecutive sermons on Isaiah 53. That's one chapter, 12 verses, 72 sermons. 16 sermons were on the first verse alone. The original publication came in two volumes, and it was 1,100 pages long. Now, one of the reasons why these men's and other and others like them, they did this is because they wanted to learn everything they could from every single text. The scripture was precious to them. They wanted to really see everything that God has for them in this text. But the only way this works is through hard work. You can't just look at a verse and magically you're going to now preach for 72 sermons on a single chapter. You're not going to be able to read through it a couple times and going to be able to preach for a few years through a book of the Bible. But no, this is hard work, slow, tedious, mind-stretching work. It is struggling with the text. So this, hard, this idea of work, this points us back to our brother Danny, how he preached. It is good for us to work. We're called to work. But today we're going to take it up a little bit further. We're going to talk specifically about hard work, not just work, but hard work in the church. We're talking about hard work in the church. 
So today we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So as you begin to turn over there, join with me in prayer as we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you now. We come before you as your bride, as brothers and sisters in Christ, united with you, united in faith, with one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Lord, we just come before you saying, please open up our hearts, open up our minds to hear the words that you have for us today. Begin to speak to us and show us how we can apply these words, this passage to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word of the Lord says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So the first thing I want us to see is it says that Paul, he says, I want you to know how great of a struggle I have for you. Paul struggles for the church. The word here in the Greek is the word agon. It's where we get the idea of agony. There's an intensity with this word. Hebrews 12.1 tells us that we're to run with endurance the race or the agon that is set before us. 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight or to agon the good agon. And then later in the second Timothy 4, 7, he tells Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have agoned the good agon. There's intensity. The Greeks use this word to describe Olympic training. The idea was that you're going to, this is, you're going to train, you're going to work, you're going to struggle to the point of exhaustion. And a good example of this idea of working ourselves to exhaustion is in the sport of ultramarathoners. So a marathon race, you know, you're going to run, you're going to run 26.2 miles. You know, if you're good, you're going to be somewhere and take you about three hours, four. If you're not so good, six hours, a little bit more. But for ultramarathoners, the runner, you're going to be running for at least a hundred miles. Those are the short races. They can get well into 200, 250 miles. You're going to be running for 24 to 36 hours on the short end and upwards of 90 hours on the, the, for the longer races. These races are brutal. They're grueling. It's a guarantee that as you run, your body will ache. Your knees, your hips, they're going to be on fire. Your, t- your feet are going to take a beating. You will get blisters. The be- your feet are going to take such a beating, and I don't understand why, but your toenails will actually just fall off. Because you're beating yourself up so bad. As you go, your body's going to begin to overheat, to overexert. To such the point that you're going to drink some water and you're going to immediately throw it back up. You cannot keep any liquids down, any food down, nothing. But after running all day and you're only about halfway done, 
Your body's exhausted, you're dehydrated, you're really pushing yourself, you're not functioning well. But at this point, because of the darkness and the exhaustion, now you will begin to hallucinate. There's stories of people that will be running in the middle of the night and they will have a full-blown conversation with a friend who's 300 miles away asleep in his bed. They have no idea. They're just hallucinating. This type of, this is agon. This is struggling. This is training. This is pushing their bodies beyond what we think is even possible. And this is the intensity of what Paul is talking about. He's saying that he struggles for the church. He gives everything he has for the church. His life is consumed by the church. He's not struggling just for a day or just a few days. It's not just, but he's struggling day after day, week after week, year after year. He struggles. He agonizes. He agonizes to his dying breath. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15.10 that he worked harder than anyone. He struggled. But do we struggle? Can we say that we struggle? Can we say that we agonize for the church? Can we say we work for the church with the same intensity as an Olympic athlete or as an ultramarathon runner? Or is church just something that we think about here, think about there? Is it just a box we check on our weekly to-do list and nothing more? But notice that Paul is not aimlessly struggling for the church. He's not just going and just struggling and going in 100 miles an hour in 100 different directions. But he has a purpose. He has a focus. Just as the Olympic swimmer focuses on swimming, the runner on running, the lifter on lifting, Paul is also focused. And he's going to struggle and he wants to have three things happen. The first is Paul says he wants to struggle for their hearts to be encouraged. We will hold me fast. Why is this assurance so important? That we are sealed by the Spirit. That we are adopted into the family of God. That we have the imputed righteousness in our life. Simple. There's tremendous power in assurance. Help is here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your blessed Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us, given to the disciples this resource, and this resource is available to us. Help us to listen to the teaching, the instruction. In those times when we can't pray, to know that the Spirit is tenderly pleading for us. Lead us, guide us by your Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.